Hey, it's Andrew, and welcome back to Season 3 of Network Disrupted, where I, along with some very smart guests, help fellow technology leaders trade notes on navigating disruption in our space. This season, I've set a goal of exploring the issue of enterprise cloud adoption from many angles as I can, and it really feels great to be back. Joining us today is none other than Richard A. Clark, an internationally known security expert and author who served in the White House under three U.S. presidents as America's first cyber czar and its first counterterrorism czar. Richard was the national crisis manager on 9-11 and is now a sought-after consultant on corporate security risk and cybersecurity. In this episode, you'll hear us touch on cybersecurity as we dive deep into the topics of ransomware, what cloud adoption means for your security posture, and Dick's very actionable advice on all that for both medium and massive enterprises. And as a special treat, I'll be giving away two copies of one of his books. If you follow this show's LinkedIn or Twitter accounts, all you have to do is comment your favorite part of the episode onto the most recent post you see. My producer will add your name to the proverbial drawing hat. And finally, my producer is asking you, if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to this. The feedback's always helpful, and you'll be helping more people like you discover the show. Maybe you can give me a sense of the complexity. We love the pilot-proof concept approach. It influences everything. It influences the human experience. There were several failures along the way. We want to be early adopter customers. You are handling sensitive information. Network disruptive. So, Dick, thank you again for joining us. Um, thrilled to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Always learn when I talk to you and uh, and looking forward to it. So, obviously, right now there's a great deal of concern around ransomware for enterprises, for governments, given everything that's been publicized and is happening recently, obviously, going on for much longer than that. And a lot of fear and, and not, not necessarily clarity on how one should assess the risks and what, how, how any enterprise should start trying to protect themselves from ransomware. Where does a company start? Well, I think the first thing a company needs uh, to look at is its insurance policy, because insurance is driving a lot of this. Uh, we've seen cases where criminal gangs uh, hack into a company and look for its insurance policy. Uh, and once they know how much money they can get from uh, ransomware, then they do the ransomware and demand that amount of money. And there have been dialogues uh, back and forth with the criminals where the criminals have said, well, come on, don't tell me you can't afford that. I'm reading your insurance policy. I know right. you can afford that. And the insurance companies are routinely telling their clients to pay rather than to uh, try to rebuild the system. And the reason for that is it's better for the insurance companies. Most of the insurance policies allow you to choose whether you're going to pay up or you're going to rebuild. If you choose to rebuild, they have to pay for that. And that's 10 times as expensive usually, right. um, eight to 10 times as expensive as paying the ransom. So the insurance companies are um, actually kind of forced for not good here because they, uh, they're urging people to pay. Now that ransomware has become the other pandemic, the insurance companies are hurting uh, because they are paying so much. Uh, and so they're increasing their rates when policies need to be re-upped. In some cases, they're excluding uh, ransomware from the policies. So I think the first thing a company needs to do is know what your policy is uh, and know what it covers and know when it expires and have a conversation with them. I think the second thing they need to do uh, is to realize 
no matter how hard you try, you might get hit with this. And therefore, how could you have the option of restoring your essential services? One way is to have a backup made routinely and stored completely offline. Right. Uh, and to have it for at least have several backups going, uh, going back at least two months. Uh, and the reason for this is the ransomware guys, the criminals now, wait until their uh, software is, is backed up. Uh, yeah. So that when you, when you bring down the backup and mount it, poof, there it goes right. again. So you want to have an old, a reasonably old backup. And we recommend two months because they don't, they're not that patient. They usually only wait about a month. And it doesn't have to be uh, one uh, backup. Uh, you can have golden disks for key pieces of software that you use. Right. Uh, and you, you, ha- you need to have a restoration plan. It's, you have an incident response plan. It's detailed. Uh, I know Blue Cat does. Right. You need to have an incident response plan specifically for ransomware that's fairly detailed. That is assuming you're willing to try uh, to restore services. You also might want to have what we call a, a stealth network. Let's assume everything is encrypted. Your, your VoIP uh, phones, your iPhones, uh, printers, routers, the whole nine yards. Well, you can't crisis manage uh, without any communications devices. So you want to have a kit somewhere of phones, uh, smartphones, that nobody knows about so they can't hack them. Uh, you want to probably have a stealthy uh, website somewhere uh, that you can activate when you when you need to. Uh, maybe a whole stealthy network doesn't have to be the whole a sure. mirror image. I mean, right. some minimal essential thing so that you can get back up and running, uh, and so that you can using DNS, you know, change uh, over right. to another website somewhere. I'll tell you a quick war story if we have time here, and it involves the uh, the Canadian company BlackBerry. When the North Koreans hit Sony Pictures with wiperware, right, uh, and not ransomware, but wiperware, they didn't encrypt; they just wiped all the software off. So all of the electronic devices uh, were just bricks; they they didn't work. So I arrived there and at the Hollywood lot, and they were uh, they're in chaos. And I was sitting in the conference room with all of these people yelling at each other. Uh, they couldn't communicate with Tokyo. They couldn't communicate with New York. Finally, a guy walked in with a, a box of blackberries. And he said, I found the blackberries. We never <laughs> turned them off. We still have blackberries that work. And so they could communicate. But then these you know, 20 senior executives of Sony Pictures Entertainment were fighting over who would get the 10 blackberries. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's where this idea comes from. Have a, yeah. backup, have a backup communications plan. No, for sure. Yeah, like you know, it's almost like a, a emergency management, uh, crisis management system in a city or something. You know, if all communication should fail, how are we going to communicate? And, that's why. Um, that's why you have the satellite phones, right? Right. Right. So the other thing, obviously, you should do in in terms of uh, minimizing the hurt of one of these attacks is micro segmentation of the network. Yeah, uh, and that's only as good as your identity access management uh, around that. Uh, and that's going to be, you know, multi-factor and probably more than two-factor to prevent the, the ransomware from spreading. Most of the time, the ransomware gets in by phishing. Not always, most of the time. And so you really want to ramp up your anti-phishing efforts 
which means uh, largely uh, education. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting one of these companies uh, like No Before, or there are several of them that send out test emails all the time to see if people in the company will will fall for a phishing uh, attempt, and and uh, they get penalized if if they do that more than three or four times, uh, and they get rewarded if they you know are are, are always good and, and catch them. So microsegment the network, educate people about phishing, uh, have a clean communication system, look at your insurance policies back things up offline and back them up for a long period of time. That's what a company can do. What the governments can do is outlaw paying. And and, and every time I say this, and I've said it a lot, the governments ought to say it's illegal to pay. People immediately say, but you can't stop a hospital uh, from paying because a hospital has to get back up. And I agree a hospital has to get back up. And hospitals have unfortunately been hit with ransomware. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the answer here is a combination of things where uh, the government has the right to waive penalties uh, under some circumstances if people pay. And the governments can work with the private sector to have flyaway uh, teams to go in and help. Uh, you know, if um, a hospital can't afford to have a, a good incident response team come in and help, uh, you know, Hospitals, a community service, the government ought to have on standby teams, both from the government itself and from uh, private companies like FireEye. They can rush in uh, and and help a, a hospital or some other critical infrastructure. Right, or, or and and you know perhaps even help them ahead of time with with assessments in general. Given that they're critical infrastructure, critical infrastructure should be prepared. Yeah, but you know, in, in a way, ransomware is Darwinian. Mm. It identifies the the people in the herd who are going <laughs> to who are going to yeah. lag behind, right? Right, uh, and be eaten by the tiger. It's a great way of identifying companies and institutions that haven't done a good job on cybersecurity. Right. We had a big city here, Baltimore, where the city government was hit by ransomware, and the mayor uh, said, "Well, hell, you you know, we're we're." straining as it is to pay for schools and healthcare and police, you can't expect us to pay for cybersecurity. Well, yeah, actually, I can. I can't imagine that same mayor saying, well, you can't expect us to pay for electricity. Right. Uh, You can't expect us to pay for the water. Yeah. Well, you know, cybersecurity is kind of like electricity and water and telephone service. It's an essential these days for any modern institution government or private sector you have to have cybersecurity and you have to pay uh, a certain price for it and, uh, in the in the book uh, that rob kanaki and i did uh, the fifth domain we asked companies uh, how much do you spend as a percentage of your it budget how much do you spend on cybersecurity and if the companies said three percent four percent five percent then we knew the answer to the next question which is have you been hacked and the answer was always yes. If the company said, oh, we spend 12%, you know, 15% uh, of the IT budget on security, then we knew the answer would be, no, we haven't been hacked in years. Right. And, and there are a lot of, lot of CIOs out there and a lot of CFOs who are just fighting that. It just comes down to if, if you don't pay now for security, you pay later for cleaning right. it up. And when you have to clean it up, it's going to cost you 10 times as much. Yeah. You know, my 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 concern always is, or one of my concerns is, it's easy to spend ten to twelve percent, 
that, that doesn't necessarily mean you're spending it wisely or you're utilizing the things you've bought appropriately. And so I think, I think companies can run into the situation where they're, they're buying a lot of different things to solve for different whatever known issues or somebody knows somebody on the board and says you need to buy this or whatever the case might be. But at the end of the day, aren't necessarily in a better posture than they would have been if they were spending 3%. No, that, no, that's right. It's, it's the necessary but not sufficient condition. Right. Uh, is, is, to, is to say you're, uh, you're willing to budget that amount of money. But then you're right. You've got to get someone to figure out what is the risk I'm designing against. And you've got to have somebody willing to uh, integrate all of that stuff for you. Very often, that's too hard for a company. And that's where uh, the managed security providers come in. Yeah. Uh, and if you're a small or medium-sized company, I think you ought to be using um, managed security service uh, to take away at least some of the burden on the IT security team, maybe right. all of it. Right. No, and w- w- you know, without a doubt, I mean, you're you're not going to be able to necessarily hire the appropriate professionals, but certainly not at the scale you would be as a as an enterprise or large enterprise if you're a smaller company. And and I see that working really well, but you know like everything else, there's really good managed service security providers and, and others that, that you know, a, a lot of, it's this weird thing, right? So ransomware is real. It's painful. A lot of people are being hit with it. It's also making a lot of cybersecurity companies a lot of revenue because they're selling a lot of solutions to protect it. You know, I used to always joke around if they can just fix email, you know, it's gotten yeah. the attention of the boards in, in, in right. a lot of companies. Uh, it's also gotten the attention of the president of the United States, which yeah. uh, you know I've been following president's actions on cybersecurity since the 1990s. I think I I got the president, in this case Bill Clinton, to hold the first crisis meeting on a cyber incident. Right. But this is the first time uh, in the last few months where a president picked up the phone and called another world leader, uh, and Biden called Putin. And said, "Knock it off." Yeah. Uh, I know this. Uh, our evil uh, group, criminal group, is in Russia. We know exactly where it is. We know exactly who they are, uh, and so do you. So either you go stop them from uh, doing ransomware in my country, or we will violate your sovereignty. We will violate your cyberspace, and we'll deal with them. Right. Well, that message, I think resonated uh, in Russia because that group seems to, for the moment, have gone away. Now, I stress for the moment, uh, I expect they will be back uh, with another name and with uh, software that's slightly different. But even though they seem to have gone away, uh, ransomware hasn't. Uh, Other people are doing it, and uh, it it continues to be a, a problem. I like the idea, however, of the president getting involved and trying to organize a community of like-minded nations around something uh, and saying to scofflaw governments like the Russians, here's the standard. Either you do this or there will be a price to pay and not just a price that we're going to impose on you, but this group of like-minded nations. If you can get the United States, Canada, Germany, Australia, Japan, uh, the United Kingdom behind something and you then go to the scofflaws uh, and say, do this or stop doing this or else, and you have some specific or else in mind, I think that can work. Uh, and we've never really tried it with cybersecurity, uh, believe it or not. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about doing that, but we haven't done it yet. 
Well, I mean, there's there's this ongoing debate if if we should be considering those sorts of attacks on the same line as we would a more traditional armed forces type attack. They're, they're attacking our sovereignty in in both circumstances, just through different tools. Right, and I I think the Pentagon um, actually addressed this issue fairly well back in the Obama administration, uh, and they issued a written policy that said. Uh, we will consider a cyber attack uh, an attack on the United States, and we will respond as though it were not a cyber attack, taking into account the level of damage done. So if you break into the city of Baltimore (laughs) to to continue to pick on Baltimore and and do something to their internet, okay, fine, we'll respond appropriately and proportionately. Uh, if you take down uh, the eastern power grid uh, in Canada and the United States, uh, we may respond a bit more. Yeah, right. Uh, and that policy also was finally adopted by NATO, uh, which said that a uh, cyber attack is an attack. Uh, and we will consider a response not based on the means that you use, but on the damage that you did. Right. So, uh, you know, the other thing, coming back to what companies ought to uh, to think about in terms of ransomware, in terms of security in general, moving some security burden off to a managed security provider, and there are lots of good ones. uh, Can we name names? Uh, Go for it. I think, uh, you know, in Canada, eCentire, great company. In the United States, uh, ReliaQuest, uh, Expel, Arctic Wolf, uh, all all great providers. Uh, So you have some choices. In addition, though, to moving some of the security burden off uh, onto people like that, I think you also have to move it into the cloud uh, because depending upon how you do your cloud configuration and which cloud you're in, or which clouds, plural, I should say, um, because I always recommend multi-cloud, you can get some of the security done by the cloud provider. Uh, you know, I think AWS and Microsoft are signed, sort of competing uh, to to say, you know, we provide good security. Well, I love that. I love that kind of competition. Yeah, no, that that's good. And I mean, outside of just cloud, I mean, Microsoft in general is pushing very hard, even on endpoint security and elsewhere, on on not being the consumer low cost solution, but being the solution for enterprises. They're investing heavily in security. They are, which is a you know, if you're if you're old enough, like uh, and been in this business as long as you and I have, you know that's a complete turnaround over the oh, course 100%. of the last twenty years. Yeah, yep. <laughs> uh, because they really didn't care at all about security. Uh, a quick war story there: the Microsoft product uh, Windows was so bad, so uh, back in the nineteen nineties and the early two thousands, that the banks, the major Wall Street banks, got together organized a group and went out to Redmond uh, and met with, I think it was Bill Gates, so it, it was probably in the late 90s, and said, uh, if you don't clean up Windows, we're all moving to Linux. And if you don't believe that, uh, you might want to look into what, what the U.S. government has done. It's just issued a secure version of Linux. Right. Uh, I and I was at the White House at the time. My phone started ringing like... Did you authorize them to do a secure version of Linux? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you, you know, uh, it has been a turnaround, uh, obviously. And I remember I remember that story. I mean, not, not I didn't know the meeting happened at Microsoft, but I certainly remember the early adoption of secured Linux from the, the U.S. government standpoint or, or reading about it. But yeah, and, and, and from a 
just back to the cloud perspective, I, I think it, it's great that they're innovating, competing there. And, and I, I think I think that's because it's also core buying criteria, you know, and, 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 and the cloud uh, gives a great deal of opportunity to do things correctly, because in many cases, it's greenfield as well as you're moving stuff there. So you're not thinking through this probably wrong security architecture of your corporation today and by probably wrong i mean you you only know is you only know so much and you've a bunch of stuffs on the network you know discovering and great but but you've got massive complexity versus i'm going to go start deploying stuff into cloud and so now here's some greenfield and that's micro segmented by default in most cases you know it, it's forget about ports and protocols you can go to a higher level and start defining you know identity and identity access why something should speak to something and so you can do it right you can also make a complete mess out of it and and you know uh, do stuff that's absolutely insecure so i i think the strategy is different the complexity is different the you know but but this this idea that's greenfield i think is is fantastic and these security services that the cloud vendors are competing on create revenue for them which is also fantastic right, right. It's right. A, absolutely it's shared value you know <laughs> the better they do the more i'll pay you and and the more we'll both succeed but but let's you know remind listeners uh that we're what we're not saying uh we're not saying if you go to the cloud, uh, AWS or Microsoft will take care of all of your security for you. Right. That's not true. Uh, they will give you a base, a baseline. Uh, so if you if you push some of the security work off on them, some of the security work off on a managed security provider that works on, on cloud accounts, right. then you've got still some work to do yourself. Absolutely. And you have to have tools that work in the cloud and the tools that you had on prem uh, not, are not necessarily going to work in the cloud. You know, does your DLP work in the cloud? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Does your vulnerability scanner work in the cloud? What alarm is going to go off if you have a, an unsecured S3 bucket somewhere? You, you need to have a, a different uh, expertise uh, and a different set of questions and a different set of products. Uh, for the cloud. But if I ever had a customer, uh, a client say to me, well, cloud schmoud, you know, what should I do? Should I, should I move or not? And if so, which one? My answer would be A, be a hybrid. If you can still have some uh, stuff on-prem somewhere for some functions, do, and have the ability to run that up, expand that if you have to. Sure. Uh, and to be multi-cloud because I understand that AWS has never come down for a prolonged period of time, or uh, Microsoft Cloud Azure has never come down for a prolonged period of time. But there's a first for everything in security, right? Yeah. Uh, and having the ability to have at least two clouds running and be able to shift load uh, if you have to, uh, I think is important. It also allows you to negotiate a better deal. And also, and this is, again, when trying to express as like it, it's 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 good for everything so you talked about reliability a cloud can go down it might be because of security it might just be because of reliability in general but ultimately when you're pushing new especially new applications to cloud one of your goals is global scale and deploying multi-cloud deploying across multiple regions all of this is probably part of how you wanted to deploy or you should be thinking about deploying the application anyway so and you may have to because of gdpr and other yeah. privacy rules you may have to have multiple clouds yeah, you know, again, that just that that now increases complexity and cost as well. So it's one of those uh, trade offs. You know, I, I, you know, to to your point on cost before to negotiate a better rate, great, 
But if you're a SMB, then that multi-cloud, you need to weigh against the skill sets you need to best utilize those clouds, you know? So, and, and yes, there's plenty of products out there that will make that more agnostic, but then you lose some of the capabilities of the cloud and, you know, it's just, it's an ongoing debate, right? But I, I, you know, frankly, from the customers I know well, from our broad customers, I can't think of a single one that has a single cloud strategy. They all, for a variety of different reasons, have multi-cloud strategies. Well, I, I think the Fortune 100 all do, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the whole idea of hybrid cloud with, along with data center, great. And again, from a security side as well, but you know, even there's, there's a lot of naive moves to cloud early on. Okay, I, I own all this hardware, it's working fine, but I'm gonna move it all to cloud because I think it's gonna reduce cost, And but I'm not gonna re-architect it to take advantage of the cloud. And so I end up paying way more than I was paying on-premises and surprised why my bill is so large. And you know, so I, I think there's a strategy there as well. There is, and, and you know, I generally uh, don't have high regard for the big uh, consulting firms that come in and, and help you with migration and all of that. But if you're a medium or large enterprise uh, and you're beginning afresh to migrate into the cloud, you probably ought to get a consulting service to come yeah. in and help you think about that uh, because it's not straightforward, right. as you said. Uh, depending on how you architect it, you can save money. Uh, Or if you just want to move your old designed uh, network into the cloud, you're going to probably spend a huge amount of money. But but that I mean and you you can say the same thing about securing the cloud and and in 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 both cases I would say you know the the whatever consulting company you hire if your goal is to hire somebody who comes in you know we used to call it the the Kinkos process like you know go search and replace last customer you worked with with new customer name and and just xerox the stuff you know well they um, do it and, and sometimes they forget to change the name yeah yeah and and uh but but you know in in that approach which is okay assume i'm naive tell me what to do uh the outcome probably will not be optimized in the sort of thoughtful methodical you know maybe upfront. How should we be thinking about this? What are the options there's always context you know we, we, we talk about this a lot with software development like there's no Everybody can run to Scrum, but but if you're going to go run to some formulaic process that is supposed to work in every possible case, then then don't be surprised when it's not working well for you because you're not every possible case. You've got a specific context. This is what you're doing, and uh, and I, I think I think whenever a consulting engagement starts with that, we're just going to listen to this company and do what they do. Then yeah, that's not going to. That's not going to bode well. But it's it's too hard for most companies to do it, to design Without, it with with their own staff. A hundred percent. So I just mean, you know, that's you need to augment that with 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 expertise. I mean, the problem with cloud in many cases is uh, companies don't have the wisdom internally. The stuff is too new. They they don't have people who have worked failed, seen failure modes, understand why those failure modes exist, and have strategies around those failure modes. And, uh, and I, I strongly believe if you haven't, if you haven't seen things fail, if you don't understand how things can fail, whether it's process practice or technology, then you don't have the wisdom you need to do that on your own. Well, boy, is that correct. I think you should say that again, because that, that, that is just, I know it sounds simple, but it's a profound understanding. Uh, people who haven't seen failure, uh, can't anticipate it. Right. Uh, you know, I, you, you mentioned I, I wrote several books. One of them uh, was not on cybersecurity. It was on this phenomenon of warnings. And we did, I think, 14 case studies 
seven of things that have happened in the past and seven of things that might happen in the future. And the question we asked was, why in every case uh, was there an, an expert uh, who predicted the disaster precisely uh, and was ignored and the disaster came, even though there was warning? Uh, and we found all sorts of reasons. But the overwhelming reason uh, in most cases was that that specific kind of disaster had never happened before. And so, because we were trying to make the book sound, you know, social science-y, we called it uh, first occurrence syndrome. Right. That when you're, when you're the, the decider and somebody comes in with their hair on fire uh, and says, this awful thing is going to happen and I'm the expert on this. I'm not a crazy person. I'm an established expert and I'm data-driven. Here's the empirical evidence. This terrible thing is going to happen. Well, no matter how good you are uh, at doing that, very often the decider will say, okay, thank you very much. You know, have a nice day. Right. I'm busy. Or, or, they'll, or they'll give them lip service. Oh, yeah, we'll do something. We'll do this little thing and see what, what happens. And then, of course, the whole thing crumbles around their heads. And it, it's very interesting because uh, Hillary Clinton, in her book about why she didn't get elected, uh, a book called What Happened, I think, uh, she picked up on my book, uh, and she said, you know, I think Dick Clark was on to it. it, this first occurrence syndrome. Uh, yeah, we knew the Russians were messing around uh, in the U.S. election, and they were doing all sorts of things on social media and the cyber attacks on the, on the Democratic Party. But nothing like that had ever happened at scale that had a, that was a material impact. Yeah, material impact. Uh, and therefore, you know, I think we kind of just didn't think that could happen. So it's very important to have gone through disasters. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't done it yourself, <laughs> which no one wants to, to at least have studied the phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, so that it, you can think dirty. In our consulting gigs, we frequently go into companies and say, can we have five people from five different departments around the company, uh, lock them in the room with us. Uh, and can you, the CEO, come in and say, we trust these consultants. You can tell them whatever you want. They will not identify the source of information if you give them information. They're not going to say, you know, Joe in accounting told me this. So talk to them. And then they close the, they the CEO out. We close the door and we say, okay, guys and gals, what could we do to really screw up this company? Come on, you've thought about it. Yeah, You've yeah, thought yeah. about it. Someday it occurred to you, wow, right. if I did that, that would really, you know. So the, the, dirty, the dirty thinking sessions can be really productive. Yeah, well, I'm sure. I would imagine. It's, you know, once you create that sort of safe, trusting space. But uh, yeah, obviously people are thinking through that stuff. The, the, the counter, the, the other thing we've learned through this process of the last few years, though, is how easily a significant, a large percentage of the population is happy to believe something happened that didn't happen you know uh and um and, and just not look at data at all it, it's almost it, it it's become easier to convince not necessarily an expert in some cases experts but but certainly a meaningful block of of voters let's say that something that didn't happen happened than it is to convince them that something happened actually or that might happen you know it, it's and I, I think you know obviously we've, we've learned that in a very 
very painful way over the last few years and continue to learn it. And there have always been conspiracy theories, and there have always been a, a fairly large chunk of the populace who wants to believe them. I used to joke, before social media existed, I used to joke that 27% uh, of the American people in any poll believed anything you wanted to, to say. Right. Uh, you know, 27% of the American people believed flying saucers had, had taken a, uh, people away, uh, alien abductions. 27% of the American people believed that uh, we never landed on the moon. 27, it was always 27, 28% of the American people believed absolute nonsense. And so it's not surprising uh, that when social media comes along, uh, they're able to manipulate uh, Russians and other people are able to manipulate that, that block of people. It's a big percentage. It is. But back on the back on the the, the cyber side, I, I think uh, you know, especially as it relates to cloud, I, I always you know, the, I don't actually hear the debates anymore, frankly, uh, that you would hear like you know, like when we first, when when my company first started deploying stuff on cloud, there was this oh my god, these sorts of companies will never ever 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 trust cloud. Well, now they all trust cloud. You know, I remember trust, that. Yeah, I, just, I remember that. Yeah, they trust cloud for a variety of different reasons, and and also understand that they they you know to remain competitive and and to continue to build the sort of technology they need to to meet their strategies, they they need to use that sort of technology, and and so so it's it's not necessarily you know nobody debates if the cloud is a thing anymore. But it's yeah. interesting that they did, and you know, you know yeah. I remember the period you're talking about, where uh, I would get calls from uh, CIOs and and others. Uh, because they they would think before they called me that I would say no, don't go to the cloud; it's not secure. Right. Uh, and so they would call me uh, and say, "My boss wants us to go to the cloud. That that wouldn't be secure, would it?" And I'd say, "Well, actually, it could be more secure. Right. <laughs> it, right. it, it depends." Yeah. No. It it totally depends. And and uh, and and which is back to what we we're talking about before. So now, so how do I assess that? And how do I how do I make sure my strategy is right and and I'm using it correctly? And and uh, you know, obviously, there's there's um, people, process, practices available to to help with that process. But but it's critical. And the U.S. government is. I mean, in, in different standards and frameworks, along with with. Um, with the UK and, and the EU as well. I mean, th there's plenty of guidelines out there to help assess, you know, your security posture in some of these areas that, that can be used as starting points. But, you know, I, I think we see a lot of companies just struggling in the boundary between what what we've done on-premises forever and what we're doing in the cloud and really trying to understand how do I take my requirements and build the right architectures in the right areas in order to meet the requirements. The requirements don't change. I'm protecting against a specific threat. I'm protecting against ransomware, whatever it might be. And But the solution is going to be different in cloud than it was on-premises. You can't necessarily hammer the same solution into both, um, nor should you expect you can. So it, it's this sort of distinction that I talk a lot about between, you know, uh, architectures exist to meet business requirements and and then there's design and engineering in order to fulfill the architectures and in often cases you know the requirements are the same the architectures might be filled separately in different domains and 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 but you, you can't think of it as just trying to extend what you're doing on premise to the cloud and so what we see often is this conflict between the two areas where and you know oftentimes the you know even though the i don't know the the 
let's say it's a firewall, next gen firewall expert on premise or team, you know, okay, so we're not going to just take virtual firewalls and throw them in the cloud. We have a different strategy there. That doesn't mean that the knowledge and capability of those people shouldn't be part of the conversation of how we're going to secure things up in the cloud because they bring just a wealth of expertise. Back to what we're talking about before, they've seen stuff fail. You know, they understand failure modes, they understand packet captures, they understand what data looks normal, what data doesn't look normal. You know, they, they, they come with a ton of experience. We see failure modes of just this being done in isolation, I guess. Yeah, and they know if you've experienced failures before, they know what questions to ask. Right. Uh, because they, they proceed from a what could go wrong perspective. And all too often, uh, this is the difference between CIOs and CISOs. CIOs ask, what can I, what can I get done? And how can it save money and how can it create efficiency and reliability? CISOs ask, what could go wrong? And they really, that's where they put their thought. Uh, and they really try hard uh, to imagine all the different vectors and all the different combinations of things that could result in a, in a risk. I, I think people don't take seriously enough the idea of a cyber risk register. Uh, when I go in on the consulting gig, and, and the first one of the first things I ask is, can I see your, your risk register, your cyber risk register? And Andrew, I got to tell you, half the time they don't have one. And it, you know, then my work is really cut out for me. But if you have a cyber risk register, it, it has to be constantly updated because the threats are changing and technology is changing. Uh, and you have to review, uh, you know, you've got something here on the risk register you're going to get to in two years. Well, you know, you got to move that up because the world has just changed. Yeah. And the, the beauty of a cyber risk register is it also uh, allows you to say, look, I understand this is a multi-year solution. Uh, and I have a two-year plan or a three-year plan because you can't solve all the, the security problems uh, no matter how much money you spend uh, in a year. No, for sure. But, but those are the dimensions, right? I mean, if that cyber risk registry doesn't have the dimension of the likelihood of this risk coming to fruition, like, you know, this actually happening, and also doesn't have a dimension of the pain it would create, then it's sort of meaningless, right? And those things can change. The likelihood of this happening has now changed. The pain still low? Well, then great. Keep it keep it on the roadmap. The, the pain high? Then you better change your priorities, right? Let me quibble with you because- okay. You just outlined the what the the approach of risk management, you know, which is likelihood times damage. Right. I don't like that approach. Uh, I know that's the the, the established, yeah. canonical approach. I don't think you can you can really judge likelihood. Right. Uh, I think if something can happen, it probably eventually will, uh, even though it's very unlikely. I mean, my entire history of of crisis management in the government and out revolved around things that were entirely unlikely, but were happening. Uh, you know, if they, if they were likely, then, you know, I probably didn't have to deal with them. Somebody else would, I always got stuck with the ones that were yeah. like, this is, this is so <laughs> Super unlikely. Good point. Right, right, right. The things you need to be concerned about are the things that you think are unlikely to happen. Yeah. Because they, you know, if you think about just your, your history textbook that you were taught in high school or something, it's, it's a list of dates where events occurred that, had never occurred before and were unlikely. That's why that's why they made you know historical interest. So I take a different approach. I say, tell me what can happen. 
or tell me what you think you have blocked from happening. So let's start with what do you think you have blocked from happening? Okay. Now, what would have to change or what would a bad guy have to do to get around the thing that you put in place, the security measure you put in place? How do I get around that? Don't just tell me, oh, I have a security measure and check that you know, risk sure. off. I've solved that risk because I've done this. Constantly think about how do I defeat that security measure? Because if you, if you take that approach, uh, then likelihoods go up. So that my combination is, what's the cost to you if it happens? And how could somebody who really wanted to make it happen and was smart, how could somebody make it happen? Understood. And I, somebody can always make it happen. Yeah. And, you know, and, yeah. and, and CIOs and some CISOs, but mainly it's CIOs, just don't want to think that way. They want to think of, I've solved the problem, moving on. They never want to say, I'm an, I'm an attacker. I'm going to put my mind into the attacker mode and I'm going to spend some real uh, brain cells, some real cycles here, figuring out how to defeat what I've got in place. Right. That's the CISO's job. Yeah. Look, and you multiply all of that by how quickly things change now, which is is dramatic from a, a good and bad side. I mean, it, it's the the pace of change of innovation right now is is unbelievable, and in uh, the the barriers to entry for good and bad are are removed. You know, everybody has access to all of the compute and network they need to build whatever they want. You and know, the bad guys. That. The bad guys are adopting attack techniques that used to only be available to governments. Mm. Yeah. Now, that's in part because the, those techniques have been around for a while and people have noticed them. It's in part because these, the, the bad guys are frequently government people moonlighting. Right. <laughs> or selling off the bad guy techniques, you know? Yeah. It's, look, I, you know, one, of, one of our large customers once told, I mean, told me the truth, which is, you know, they live with the assumption that they're not only obviously constantly going to be attacked, but that that there are things that they don't know already happening inside of their network. Yeah, if you don't if you don't think that you're not yeah. sufficiently paranoid, right? And so their their you know huge part of their goal is to just reduce the time to detection. And they assume if it's like nation state, you know, that might be six months to a year uh, optimally. You know. Be, that that would be great. And if you look at the solar winds case, uh, I think we we got lucky in, in discovering it at nine months. Right, and uh, and but 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 again, you're just starting with that assumption that it it's going to happen, or it's already happened, I guess, um, in many cases. Yeah, because solar winds is a good case study to per persuade people about that. So for nine months, hundreds of large companies and government agencies departments uh, were compromised. Even though they were spending a lot of money, yep. uh, had every security device imaginable, and nonetheless, they were being uh, successfully hacked during that period, and they didn't know it uh, because the, they had so taken over the network that they were turning off security systems. They were erasing logs. What's fascinating is, however, there were some security products they couldn't turn off, and they knew it. They, there were just some security products that they hadn't gotten around to hacking. And when they, uh, they found themselves on a network that had one of those products, they gave up and went away. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they hid. Yeah. yeah. So they just said, look, we can't deal with this network. 
you know, yeah. we got enough other networks that we're in. We'll go we'll deal with those. Right. And there's risk to them if they were detected on those networks, because then then the whole thing is exactly. Yeah. So they can't be detected on one network. Yeah, that's exactly right. They can't be detected on one network because then perhaps everyone will find out. And so they lost opportunities because some networks had security products that they couldn't defeat. And I, I look at that list of security products that they couldn't defeat. It's kind of random. Right. Uh, it's not necessarily what you would have concluded. And I think it's because, frankly, uh, there are, they only have so many uh, people uh, and they can only do so much research. And, and they went after most of the security products that, uh, that they knew about and, and figured out ways to defeat them, but they didn't get to all of them. Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was interesting. Obviously, Blue Cat's in the, in the, in the DNS market. And, uh, and when I look at those sorts of, those sorts of attacks, things where, where, where at the end of the day, there's domain indicators and uh, that, that are, you know, part of the indicators of compromise are domain indicators that DNS is, is, is being used either for command and control or, or simply just to access something outside of the network. You know, at, at, at some point, we, we push hard on the idea that we should limit. That's a, that's a known thing. It's not a user-driven device. It's a uh, it's infrastructure service that normally does these things. So, it, can you can you segment everything else from that? You know, it queried something from a DNS perspective it had never queried before. They did a nice job of picking old domain names that they recycled. So these weren't brand new domains. They picked things that were. You know, like you look at it and you're like, oh, that sounds legit. Like, you know, it wasn't bobsbaitshop.com. And if bobsbait.shop is out there and it's a real domain, apologies. But, uh, you know, they picked, I think it was avsvmcloud.com or something. You know, something that, that doesn't doesn't necessarily look bad, doesn't look domain generated. It doesn't, it, oh, this thing's, you know, it's an infrastructure monitoring. It might be, you know, and, uh, and yet. The fact that they it, chose those old domain uh, identities that hadn't been used anymore right. and they took them over that's that was such a smart move uh, 100% i mean it was understanding how they could be defeated right and so pick something that's been there before and pick something that doesn't look odd it's not going to catch somebody's eye it's not going to catch a simple algorithm that's looking for you know uh perplexity or complexity of the domain name or, or, or domains that were established last week. Yeah, or domains that were established last week, and uh, and let's use it. And so, but but the one thing for sure is that that software hadn't looked up that domain. That server had not looked up that domain before. It was new to that server, you know. And and in those cases, I, I think I think there's some, you know, it's 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 always better to confine what something can do than try to predict if what it's doing is good or bad, right? We we try to come up with with strategies that align more to that. Difficult to do given the behavior of different things. But I think, you know, much like when I buy a product that I'm implementing, it will tell me what ports and what firewalls need to be open so that it can speak to A, B, or C. At some point, I think in those contexts, DNS needs to be somewhat, okay, here's my product and here's what DNS demands is going to query. And companies should uh, not allow it to query anything else than those. You know, again, you couldn't do it with a user-driven device, but certainly for for a, a backend server where that's predictable, then, you know, reduce the threat opportunity. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Russians, in the case of SolarWinds, used domains in Canada and the United States because they knew we would be looking for domains in Russia or Eastern Europe, but not 
not everybody's that smart. Right. Uh, and so there are huge blocks of IP addresses that you can just block because you're a company that doesn't do business in Africa. No, for sure. Look, there's also TLDs from a, a DNS standpoint. Like, you know, you don't do business with people that use the dot accountants TLD or, or dot, you know, there's a bunch of them like that. Right. And, uh, you know, and I'm not saying the dot accountants does this, but there are our domain registrars for some of these TLDs that monetize bad behavior, you know, like, and, and they, they facilitate it um, because they make money doing that. But the point is if, if, you know, more than 90% of the active domains on a, uh, for, on a TLD are malware or spam related, like it's garbage, just it's too risky to go to anything that use that domain, you know, and, and, and you can just um, shut it off. You can shut, shut off it off countries, lock it off. You can yeah. countries, TLDs, uh, and then, admittedly, there, there are ways for the attacker to get around that. And in the case of SolarWinds, they did. But yeah, no, 100%. But it's just uh, there's some unfortunate named country code TLDs out there. Like I think Cameroon is .cm. Do you know how many typos there are out there? Uh, and we see it all the time when somebody's going to theirbank.com and forget the O in com. Yep. And, uh, and and guess who owns a bunch of those domains? You know, people are smart. I'm going to wrap it up here. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you, Dick, and I really enjoyed that. Enjoyed uh, it. All right. Talk to you Thanks. later. Bye. Right, bye-bye.